So, Damon, just imagine for a second that you wake up on a Sunday morning and you go, what am I going to do today? And you think, I tell you what, I'm going to go to the Goodwood Festival of Speed. Then I'm going to go to the Wimbledon final. And then I'm going to go to the final of the Euro 2020. That was Mr. Tom Cruise on Sunday. Extraordinary, isn't it? It is extraordinary. But I have another possible explanation, which is... You know he has these stunt doubles, or he, do, he doesn't actually do. He has his own. He does his own stunts, doesn't he? How do we know which one was the Tom Cruise, the real Tom Cruise? You know what they're like in Hollywood. Well, I can answer that. His stunt double was at Goodwood, wasn't he? And he's a man called Wade Eastwood, who looks like a fifty-year-old Clint Eastwood, and he looks nothing like Tom Cruise. <laughs> so there's absolutely no doubt whether it was Tom Cruise or or Wade. They look nothing like each other. But I mean, that's that's a pretty cool Sunday to do Goodwood, Wimbledon, Euros, isn't it? it is. What's the coolest day you've ever had in that respect? Oh, I think probably when I think when I I think I might have won the German Grand Prix and then flown in with my private jet to land at Malaga and go and see the Rolling Stones on the mixing desk. Is that right? Knocked him out of the water there, mate. Yeah. That's great. I think that that was one of the perks of being a Formula One racing driver that you don't forget. You should get a stunt double. Basically, you're, you're, you're starting to get look exhausted, Tom. I mean, you've been doing that. You've been on the go now, week in, week out. All these back-to-backs, these triple headers. And then you go straight into the British Grand Prix next weekend. Can you be my stunt double? I could I'd definitely have a go. I think I could, um, yeah. I mean, what sort of stunts do you want doing? <laughs> I'm not doing the press conference. <laughs> no. <laughs> Can you at least start the show for us? Give me a break there. So this is the F1 Nation broadcast, pre-British Grand Prix, post that event that involves a round football, which we won't talk about, but we're pre the British Grand Prix. So we're all looking forward to the British Grand Prix and its new format of qualifying, which we're going to talk about a little bit in later. And we've got a special guest. All of the above. And I'm not going to mention Sunday night, but I'm kind of hoping Ferrari have a bad weekend at Silverstone because I feel... I feel they deserve that. I feel the nation of Italy deserves a bad weekend after what happened on Sunday. I can't believe you just said that. We are going to give the most fantastic welcome at Silverstone, as we always do. We love Ferrari. We love the Italians. But we also, you were talking, we can talk a little bit about uh, how it was at the Festival of Speed because we had another Italian there, Italian extracted person, Mario Andretti. What did he have to say for himself? Ah, oh, Damon, it was really fantastic to catch up with him. And actually, at one point on Sunday, he drove Alberto Ascari's 1954 Ferrari that Mario had seen him drive at Monza that year. And as he said to me just before he got in the car, he said, that was the moment I had no plan B. There was only a plan A, and that was to be a racing driver. And it is this car, this actual car... Uh, that is responsible for that. So it was, a, it was a powerful moment, actually. And you could see he was getting quite emotional. More emotional, he said, than driving the Lotus 79 that is owned by Zach Brown. And he drove that up the hill as well. But it was this Ascari Ferrari that, that really did it for him. What was your highlight, though? I saw you driving various things. Well, I, I drove, I was lucky to get asked to drive another couple of my dad's cars. There was the uh, the Shadow, which was his car from his team. So it's the first car that he raced as a Formula One team entrant, which is the, the Shadow, uh, 1973 car. And they were basically a customer car because I think Jackie Oliver sold him. He had the, the license to sell these Shadow cars. And so my dad bought one of those and, and that was a kind of, off the shelf thing before he went into being a manufacturer. 
he started buying uh, Lolas and then he kind of modified them and then they became full entrant Graham Hill cars and they were going to be raced in 76 but unfortunately they never made it to that point so the 73 car was quite an unusual looking car it's sort of quite bulbous and round but in those days they were just getting to the grips with um with aerodynamic shapes and stuff but uh aluminium chassis you know cosworth engine and uh, i got asked to drive it and they they had the crew all kitted out in embassy colors because embassy were a cigarette and i don't know if they still are but anyway we don't talk about cigarettes because we don't smoke them anymore so but they had them all kitted out in 1970s uh fashion shall i call it when you're going up the hill at goodwood do you get a feel for a car or is it just too slow in the and the there's too much camber on the road or something <laughs> yeah, like that? There's too, definitely it's, it was greasy as anything but you get a good blast off the line i like that you know do a bit of snaking up the road a bit but um, i'm just conscious it's not my car i don't want to stack it into a blooming hay bale in fact when we got to the top of the hill there was a bit of a, a worrying silence while they uh they worked out what uh, one of the cars had gone off and barrel rolled it was a usg um arrows i think that had a big shunt but I, th- I think think the guy was okay yeah, but, he, was, he was okay but it was the yeah. car certainly wasn't was it yeah. the car wasn't no so um mm. you know and you sit at the top of the hill and you got jackie stewart and mario andretti and, and all these great names and danny danny rick was there and so he was in a senna mclaren mp44 it wasn't any old senna mclaren it was the 5b from 1990 and it was the actual chassis in which senna rammed Prost at turn one at Suzuka to win the world championship that year. And it's and it still had the FIA scrutineering sticker wow. stuck to the side of the cockpit. So that's quite a special car. I enjoyed seeing that. One name you didn't mention who I really enjoyed catching up with yeah. was Roger Penske, the captain. He'd brought 11 Penske cars over from America to sort of celebrate his career from a, a NASCAR in which... Uh, he won at Riverside 50 years ago himself, because, of course, Roger was a driver back in the day. Um, and then, of course, a lot of Indy cars. John Watson was there driving the 1976 Penske, in which he won the Austrian Grand Prix as well. So it is special, Goodwood. And how they managed to get so many great names together is um, mm. it's one big garden party. And when it rains, funnily enough, like it did on Saturday, I always think it doesn't work that well. It's sort of they should have some cricket rule that when it rains... Rain stops play. Yeah, I think we'd lose an awful lot of uh, days of uh, of festival of speed, I think, if you had a rain rule like that. So I think that the fans, you know, it's like Glastonbury, welly boots, you know, you get out there and you get stuck in. It was a bit muddy, but uh, yeah, what a summer we're having. Absolutely shocking. So uh, I'm I'm, I'm really hoping that this is going to be the end of it and we'll get this fantastic weather we're owed because um, we've had some rough weather in the UK. I know you've been flying around and getting some sunshine, but Silverstone be nice to get a bit of sunshine mm. just before we move on to silverstone there was one more moment from goodwood which i loved which was the murray walker moment of which uh, you were integral damon because um you read a very nice speech down at the start line about murray and then it cut to some murray walker commentary and the whole place fifty thousand people went silent and just to hear murray screaming out over the loudspeaker again because of course, for those who don't remember, we lost Murray aged 97 back in March. Um, it was poignant and uh, lovely to hear his voice again. Yeah, it seems incredible that we're, you know, he's not around anymore. But uh, shame I didn't hear those those classic moments. I'd like to hear them. But I was clambering into my car because I had to go up the hill immediately after the reading. So, um, but um, 
You were very good, Tom. You, you said I'd got it right. You said you nailed it, Hill. You did nail it. That was good. It was an emotional read. And yeah, yeah uh, I had to stop myself from breaking out into a Murray Walker impression. Oh, I've got a lump in my throat. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so happy memories and uh, great to to send him off and, uh, and do a tribute like that, which is what they do brilliantly. They they had also an engine rev, didn't they, for Carlos Reutemann? So, uh, you know, it's never a moment lost at Goodwood to remind us uh, of, of some of the great names in the sport that when we've lost uh, people. So he got a good send off and Gordon Murray was there with a, with one of... Were Carlos Reutemann's cars, but it wasn't the actual car. It was Gordon's car. Bernie owns the original. So he thought, well, I'll just make one for myself. So it's actually one he designed and built. It's a brand new BT, whatever it was, that Carlos raced. So one of the first Brabham's. I think it was the 75 car. You've slightly burst my bubble because I was looking at that car thinking, isn't it gorgeous? And now it's yeah. actually... <laughs> well, I did. Th- I looked at it and I thought, that looks brand new. <laughs> and it was. <laughs> It was absolutely fantastic. Funnily enough, there was a six-wheeler there as well, the P34 six-wheeler, with Jody's Jody's name written down the side. And I was thinking, oh, isn't it wonderful to see that? I wonder if that's Jody's actual car. And the and the guy who was driving it said, no, mate, it's new. It's brand new, actually. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so watch out. Anyone out there who's uh, looking at old Formula One cars, and make, just check it's not been made yesterday. <laughs> the paint's still wet. <laughs> with the P34, funnily enough, they'd actually gone to the Tyrrell family and got hold of all of the original drawings for the car. So he said, right down to, to the rivets, it's identical mm. to the thing that Derek Gardner designed. But it's not an original. It was built two years ago. Or yeah. Anyway, we're, we're done with, with Goodwood, I think. I was only in and out for a day, but um, I had a nice time, nice chat, meet people like, like Mario and stuff. And it is a wonderful warm-up for the main event, isn't it? Which always follows the following weekend, the British Grand Prix. Damon, when did you first go to the British Grand Prix? It must have been a wee while ago. It was a, it was a while ago. You just reminded me there's one more event to go before we get to the British Grand Prix, which is my karting event at Sandown Park when this podcast comes out. Oh, tell us more. Tell us more. What's happening? It's a charity karting event I've been doing it for a few years. It's Damon Hill's Karting Challenge and we raise money for my charity. And so it's been well, end- it's, it's oversubscribed actually now. So it's, it's brilliant. And, and what are you raising money for? Um, Halo, which is a charity that supports young people with learning disabilities. It provides activities and learning opportunities and confidence building activities. And Johnny Herbert is coming to support us and he's entering a team and I've got to beat Johnny in the karting challenge. Well, not just you and Johnny racing each other, do, do all the punters. They must think, right, I have to overtake Damon Hill if it's the last thing I do. Yeah, and it probably will be. It's like you've got crosshairs on your back. No, exactly. I am a target. I go around and there's some people bashing into me and knocking me off the track. It's absolutely carnage. Fantastic. Well, good luck with that. Yeah, so that'll be out of my system and I'll be able to go into uh, Silverstone with, um, you know, hopefully not too many bruises. Well, it's going to be fantastic to have you at a race again because you're going to be there in person. Yeah. I am. When was your first trip to Silverstone? My first trip to Silverstone, I don't know, because I probably was a baby. I would have been there probably in my mother's womb, because my dad started racing in 90... I was born in 1960, so she would have been at the British Grand Prix in 1960, because my dad was racing in it. So then I would have been going there. But the first time as a driver, I didn't start driving until the 80s, but... um, yeah, I went there. I went there for every summer holiday. It was like we broke up. We broke up from school and then went to Silverstone and and watched my dad race or just knocked about the the paddock. That's where I basically discovered motorbikes was at Silverstone. So a few years later, I had a motorbike which I used to do wheelies. I used to go wheeling down the paddock 
on my trials bike. What, just to get around during the British Grand Prix, you'd have a motorbike? It was a free-for-all. If you got a ticket to get in the centre, you could almost go anywhere. So um, people were just wandering around, and where there was a bit of spare time or whatever, I'd go out on my bike and do a few wheelies for people. And um, it was totally different in those days. But of course, your dad never won the British Grand Prix, whereas you did, didn't you? 1994. Yeah. Um, I, I did. So I've, I've collected the, the important trophy for the, the Hill cabinet. So, yeah, he never won. He won Monaco five times, but not the British Grand Prix. I think he was a bit unlucky in 62. I think it was. He ran out of brakes or 61. But uh, no. Of the 22 wins in your career, is that one at Silverstone the most special? Well, it's, it's one of those important ones because it is your home Grand Prix. And it was also the trophy was presented by Princess Diana. And it was, uh, you know, it's a lot of... Quite a uh, controversial race because it was one where Michael Schumacher, uh, you know, overtook me and then got black flagged and then didn't come in. And then there was all this kind of uh, tension around uh, the event being 94 as well with with the, just after Imola. It was uh, extra tense. So I did feel the pressure at that race so I, I you know I can kind of relate to being in the hot seat and it was the first time I'd really been in a championship contending position going into the British Grand Prix so the pressures that come to bear on drivers in a battle for a championship are different especially when you're racing at home and um, I remember the questions and the things they make up out of a quote you know, it was all a bit of a shock to me because I, I said one or two things about Michael and before I know it, there's all this stuff over the back pages of the newspapers, you know, trying to whip up all of the tension um, before the race. But um, it was an interesting experience, 94. But DH, can I say, I think you brought some of that upon yourself because was it 94? There's a photograph of you stood on the pit wall. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think well, you know again, where I'm going uh, with this, yeah. don't you? <laughs> giving, yeah. giving Michael yeah, so a hand did, signal as he drove past. Yeah, so you lark around and then before you know it, it's turned into, it's not so funny anymore um, because yeah. it, it looks like you're serious. And and as as we know in sports, you, d you don't need much for uh, to offend the opponents and the opponent's supporters because it's not taken quite in the way it, sh it was intended. So a lot of lessons to be learned from 94. Um, and that's part of the job of a Formula One driver is, you know, is understanding the things you say and do uh, are also going to be perhaps used against you in evidence. <laughs> so that was also your, your second full season. D did you feel that the media in 93, year one, were a bit more gentle on you because it was your first year and everyone was... Yeah, I think so. In 93, it was... It was yeah. There was a little bit of... Um, I was lucky to be there because, you know, I was just uh, filling a gap because Nigel had gone off and, and I was only number two to Alan Prost. So I wasn't the main meat of the story. But of course, after Imola, when we lost to and you know, I was sort of thrown into the gap that was left by Ayrton uh, in terms of certainly within the team, uh, Williams. And so I was much more in a high profile position. And that was all new experience to me. And I, I had no proper knowledge of how to deal with those kind of pressures so i had to learn the hard way was it exhausting yeah i think it was exhausting i think it was exhausting because uh, it, it involved extra work in trying to work out you have to have a strategy of what you're going to say and what you you know how you're going to approach the weekend and how you deal with all these extra interest williams were not set up in those days now you have press people that are trying to protect the driver and so i didn't have anyone doing that i mean there was Anne bradshaw there at williams but and she was very good actually she was she was very good at uh, ticking off the tabloids when they needed ticking off but they're after a story you know and so you uh, i remember one back page there was a guy who worked for the mirror i was getting cross about something and so i stormed off uh, 
at the end of it and they chase me and this guy with a camera sort of gets the journalist and me and he's he's trying to talk to me and I'm sort of walking up and I'm looking a bit cheesed off and I took a picture of this it looked like a dramatic moment and then the back page of the the paper and the next day it said he's gone nuts and that was it full back page of of me looking like a, a person who is lost control of himself Damon, it's really interesting hearing how you deal with these pressures at the British Grand Prix. So now is a great time to bring in our special guest. We haven't actually mentioned his name so far on the show. It is George Russell racing at home. He's in the waiting room. Shall we let him in? Of course, bring him in. Oh, look, I can see him. How are we doing, guys? Hey, there he is. George, great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Looks like he's in a factory, Tom. I am in a factory. I'm currently at Williams doing uh, doing our prep ahead of the weekend. So slightly different to normal, a bit more emphasis onto the races. Obviously, we've got the sprint qualifying, is officially called, is it? Sprint qualifying or not, not a sprint race, a sprint qualifying. So... Um, of which is a race. So a bit more emphasis onto that. And, can you um, not use the word race, please? We've been told not to use the word race. <laughs> yeah. It's a race, but, but it, it's but not it a race. race. <laughs> it's, no. it's, a quali- it's a qualifying qualifying race, I guess. It's a heat. It's, is it a heat? Is it heat? Is it a heat? <laughs> I like that. A pre-final. When I used to race karting, we used to have a pre-final and then the grand finale. So maybe that could be... Uh... I like that one. Though. We should call it the grand finale on Sunday. And which one of those was the race? Sorry, George, I'm getting confused. Which one of those was the race? The the grand finale was the race. The pre-final was the pre-race. So that was <laughs> the equivalent of the sprint qualifying. But anyway... Slightly different this weekend, um, but no, really excited. It's going to be very exciting. But look, before we come on to all that, George, Damon's just been talking about the pressures of racing at home, and particularly when he won at Silverstone back in 94 with everything that had gone on earlier in the year. Do you deal with Silverstone any differently from a press point of view? Do the team help you prepare in terms of what you need to say or not say? I think from my side, in terms of on track, I never like to approach a weekend differently, whether in the past it was fighting for a championship or whether it was a home race or a new event. You know, you've got a set routine. I think keeping that routine is is really important. And just because it is my home race, I don't. I, I sh- obviously you you always give your your extra. So I always think when people say I'm going to try a bit more, well, why weren't you trying a little bit more? the previous week or the other 22 races. So there's nothing more I think a driver can give purely because it's a home race because you're given your absolute maximum. But I think that additional excitement of being your home race does naturally give you a bit more enthusiasm. So maybe that's where the the extra performance comes from. But I think the difficult bit, I guess, is there's a lot of media scrutiny and a lot of activities going on during that week and just balancing that out really because it is the biggest from a marketing perspective the biggest event of the year for us but ultimately we can't let that have an effect on the the racing so it's just finding that right balance the line george if i can just help you here is the crowd give me another second a lap that's what you say. That's what you say at the British Grand Prix. If it wasn't the brilliant, the British fans are going to give me at least another second of lap. And that's, but that's, that's, but that's, but that's what I mean. I think the crowd, 
do give you that extra that extra lap time because you naturally just have this more energy within i guess it's it's like if you have a good night's sleep you wake up you're feeling pumped and you feel ready you're not more or less talented or you're not going to work more or or less uh, hard than you did the previous week but you're just in a better state of mind and in a better space to go out there and, and do the business and i guess when you're in front of your home crowd they're all there buzzing cheering you on and that is just gonna overrule everything and, and just you know, make you perform at an even higher level because you're actually man of the moment a bit, aren't you? Because there's all this speculation about where you're going to be going. Is there going to be an announcement this weekend? And Tom's got a question for you, haven't Tom? I have. Have you signed for Mercedes, George? <laughs> I, I <laughs> Straight in there. Straight in there. Damon and I are a very slick team. Did you see the way we teed that up? We work well together. I passed the responsibility <laughs> over to Tom for that question. I signed with Mercedes five or six years ago now, that is 100% true. As everybody knows, they look after me. But with regards to my drive for next year, nothing has been signed or sealed and nothing will be announced in Silverstone. So uh, I can let you know that. Mm. I feel that's a bit of an exclusive because we've all been thinking, yeah, yeah, it's going to be announced at Silverstone. They announced Lewis a couple of weeks ago, ready for the George announcement at Silverstone, but it's not going to come. Let's let the heat off him a little bit, Tom, and say, you know, the experience of being with Williams as your first port of call, if you like, on on Formula One, your, your kind of launch pad. I mean, you've clearly done a fantastic job. The team like having you there. What about, I mean, staying with the team because it's got a new structure. It's got uh, Jos Capito and it's got some great people being drafted in now. What's the future look like if you were to stay at Williams, for example? I mean, I've said this numerous times. I think the the change of structure and everything that's going on at Williams is incredibly exciting. Obviously, the team have finished last for the past three years in a row. I'm pretty confident that will not be the case next year. Things are really making a turn for the better. Things are really getting in line and in place. You know, Yost is doing a fantastic job building that structure for everybody to be more efficient, more streamlined. And every single decision that's been made so far, I think has been been a good one for the right reasons. And I see no reason why, you know, over the course of the next number of years, Williams can't fight their way back to the front. And, you know, that might sound silly or stupid now, but... You've only got to look back at, I think it was 2013 when Valtteri and Maldonado were in the car. They finished ninth or 10th in the constructors and came out the following year and finished third. You know, podiums, most races, pole positions. This sport can change in, in a heartbeat when you've got this big regulation change. And um, fingers crossed for Williams, it, it changes for the better. And these last three races, there's been an extraordinary turnaround. I think of your 12th place in France. Great drive. No retirements, unfortunately, in front of you. Then you retired, of course, the next race. But then last weekend, I felt everyone was disappointed with 11. <laughs> you know, we were. We, we definitely were. I think um, you know, we've got a few indications as to why these past three weekends have been so strong. Fingers crossed we can keep this form up, to be honest. You know, it's not going to be quite that simple. It, it never is when you're performing on the absolute top of your game. That is really difficult to to do in week in, week out in any sport. I think Silverstone and Budapest are going to be the real test for us if that pace we showed over the past three races 
was true or it was a bit of a one-off or a couple of circumstances that played in our favour. So is it car setup or have you had a, has there been some upgrade that came prior to France? Well, I'd say in Austria, the two races, you know, we've been quite vocal about how wind sensitive our car is. The two races in Austria, there were absolutely zero wind whatsoever. So that played into our advantage. In France, it was a very heavily tyre-dominated race. You know, everybody was managing the tyres. Was it a one-stop? Was it a two-stop? Lots of graining going on, and we just did a fantastic job of pushing the tyre to the limit, but not over the limit. Suddenly, there you can put a reason as to why we had an uplift in performance in those three events. There have been things in the background we've changed, and I think they've changed for the better. You know, we've brought little things to the car that has improved it. With my engineers, we've improved the setup slightly. We've gone in a slightly different direction, which I think has been beneficial. So it's it's sort of a number of little things all coming together, which really gave us a, a big uplift in performance, um, especially in Austria. Do you feel like you've grown in confidence within the working relationships that you've got within the team? Because I've noticed, and one of the things I am not sure about with the sport as it is I hear a lot of coaching from the engineers about how to drive and stuff and I my question is whether or not really it should be the other way around with the drivers actually saying to the engineers I want this I want that and you've seen some drivers I mean Fernando I can't imagine really just doing what he's told the guy that gave you a fantastic uh, vote of confidence after Austria and you just get the idea that if you can take charge are you feeling like you're getting to that point where you can say guys I want this from the car or is that not how Formula One works? It absolutely is. I think there's enough trust and loyalty between all of us that if I feel strongly about a certain thing, people will listen and vice versa. If my engineers feel strongly about a certain philosophy or set of direction, then you know we have a very open mind. And, um, and I think that's what's so important because it's constantly evolving formula one you go to different races different conditions windy not windy different compounds of tires different weather and you've got to be adaptable and i think what is so clear is something may have worked last week but that doesn't mean it's going to work this week and you can learn bits and bobs from that but i think you just need to learn to be adaptable and that's really key but i think definitely you know over these past three years i've grown such a great relationship with the team i feel like i'm you know we're sort of working as one we all know exactly what we do we don't say things for the sake of saying it and everything we talk about there's a, a real valid reason as to why we do that and i think that's why i think we're extracting so much from our car i'm pretty confident there's not that many more people driver and team combination so we're probably extracting as much out of the the package as as we are i think the team are doing a a fantastic job while we're talking almost sort of work ethos and culture how do you feel george those aspects have changed since doralton took over from the williams family well i think the, the biggest thing is there's been less pressure of sort of the team's survival as as such you know the team previously were really struggling financially and it was basically doing everything we can just to save money and, and keep the team afloat. And that is obviously not going to 
help with performance. You know, this is a performance-dominated sport. You've obviously got to be in it to win it to start with. So that was absolutely the right decisions to be made back then. But since the new owners have come on board, you know, the, the finances have been there. It's obviously not a bottomless pot, but it's it's definitely uh, good finances to to develop where where is needed and invest the money where is needed. And, you know, the sole focus now is making the car go quicker and improving the infrastructure back at the factory, which, you know, is so key, especially when you're fighting against guys who probably had a, a more stable foundation than we did and they could just purely focus on making the car go faster. You seem to me to be a bit of a lone agent. You you, you famously went in to uh, see uh, Frank uh, with a, your briefcase in your kind of PowerPoint presentation of, as you saw your career. Are you still representing yourself? You know, you seem to me to be someone who wants to determine your own future. Am I right in that? You know, you want to be your own boss? I wouldn't necessarily say my own boss, but I think um, when I was younger, I always had the the thoughts of, you know, you've got to go out there and make it happen for yourself. You know, people, it's very rarely people come to you offering opportunities. It's quite often you've got to put yourself in the door and then the opportunities follow. And I guess that was how I got myself in the door at Williams. You know, I went to um, Hockenheim in 2018 and I literally managed to get hold of it started with with Paddy, actually, because I knew Paddy from Mercedes. I got his phone number and sent him a message and asked for a meeting with with him and Claire and um, you know, just put myself in front of him and, and started a conversation. But you know, things are different now. I am a Mercedes driver. I'm incredibly loyal to Mercedes because they have stood by my side since day one. They've given me all of my opportunities and I, I trust that they have my best interests at heart. But you know, I, I always like to keep a the relationship open with with everybody really. I never like to close any doors, and I'd never if somebody asked for a conversation, I'd never say no. Really, you never know what happens in the future, and things change pretty drastically. And um, you know, you've only got to look at, for example, Stefano. You know, he was the team principal of Ferrari, and now he's the the CEO of Formula One. And um, I guess maybe ten years ago you may not have predicted that maybe you would have i mean mm. i have only started to you can see yourself driving for ferrari at some point then i mean it's that, <laughs> that basically I... <laughs> you know we don't know do we but you've got you did mention mercedes engines of course there is another team that's got mercedes engines at the moment which is doing rather well with the other british driver who's a good friend of yours and so yeah i mean you know all things are there to play for aren't they do you have to keep producing you know your tremendous results i mean do you feel like you've established yourself or is there is just you'd never let up oh you can you can never you can never let up i think this is the the unique thing about formula one there's there's only 20 race seats in the world and if you lose form and you start um you know the results aren't coming in and you somehow lost your seat there's no guarantees you'll you'll get it back you know in football if you lose your form you might be on the bench for a couple of weeks, but you can then prove yourself again in training. Or if it's tennis, you lose your form. You might drop down the world rankings to, instead of top 10, you're 25th. But then a year later, you work your way back up to the top five or world number one. Formula One, if you're 25th in the world, you don't have a job and you're out. Damon, how long did it take you to feel that you were part of the Formula One establishment? I'm not sure. I don't know where. I, I think. I think I was always fighting to feel like I was. Actually, I, um, I think maybe when I went to Jordan, I and I kind of felt like I was a bit more number one in that team. Maybe it's it really interesting that you've had this bump in the road with Imola 
um, because, you know, you actually had a moment there where it was only not even six months before it was all looking fantastic after coming back out out of Bahrain, you know, with that um, tremendous performance that you put in there that had me jumping out of my seat um, when I was watching. It was fantastic. And then suddenly it's like bang down to earth, Imla. So you've had one of those emotional roller coasters that drivers go through. What point did you reflect on Imola and how did you grapple with that? Because that can really get quite tough, I think, emotionally on drivers. Yeah, absolutely. I guess that was a, um, a bit of a reality check that in a split second, you know, you can almost go from hero to zero and your whole perception potentially could be changed and your whole future could be changed. I think that was a massive lesson for me and how to handle myself and sort of post-crash and in front of the media even the crash itself, um, how things unfolded, whether it's the right move to go for or not, and just the whole circumstance. I'd like to think I can look back and, and say that was an, an important lesson for me, but I think I, I recognised very, very quickly that I couldn't afford to make errors like that. You know, everybody has their own view. If it was his fault, my fault, I've obviously got my own views and my own reasonings why I went for that, but... Going for a move is one thing, but then how you deal with the aftermath of it not panning out the way you want it is is a completely different story as well. I think your resilience is clear to to be seen there, and that's uh, the you know the talent shines through. But that those bumps in the road, I think, make you tougher, don't they? Uh, absolutely, I think something my my trainer Alaysh always says to me, which I love, is that you're building your toolbox, you're you're growing that toolbox to to delve into in the future whenever you need it. So, you know, I've had highs, I've had lows. I've gone through these experiences. So when I experience this again, maybe in five years or 10 years or in one year time, hopefully when I'm fighting for a world championship, I've had these positive and negative experiences to tap into when I need to and say, well, that's how I how I recovered from that certain situation last time or that's how I handled myself then and I'm going to do it differently, differently now. And I think... Being in this position, generally fighting at the back of a grid, of which with a, a very difficult car, which is not easy to drive, you know, obviously jumping in the, in the Mercedes, it was a joy to drive because it was the championship winning car and it was it was so nice and it was so fast um, versus a car that's, you know, a real battle just to get it around a lap. You know, I think I'm learning things more so than I would if I was in a car that you jump in, the car's perfect, it's fast and you're winning. George, I feel we should bring it on to this weekend's format. We touched very briefly on, we call it sprint qualifying. It's not a race. Uh, but can we actually go through the whole, the whole weekend in chronological order? Because qualifying as we know it is going to be on Friday afternoon after just one practice session. So are you going to feel a bit undercooked going into qualifying without that second practice session? But definitely the more laps you do, there's no doubt you gain more experience and you're in a better shape. But I think from my side, I, I feel confident enough that the one session is uh, sufficient. You know, I feel confident with the team that they'll give me a car that's there or thereabouts. But obviously the difficulty is if you have a problem, you know, it's not, it's happened a number of times before where a car has broken down or failed at the start of a session. That's going to really, <laughs> really uh, mess you up. So that's the only concern, I think, of only having the one session before um, what is one of the most important sessions of the, of the weekend in qualifying. And then 
17 lap race, sprint qualifying. I've seen lots of people say, oh, the drivers are going to be really conservative. Oh, they're not going to risk it. Why would you risk it? You're not going to risk your grid slot. I think George Russell's going to go for it. What's he going to do? How are you going to play it? If everybody's conservative, then it gives an opportunity to the one who's going to put a bit more out there. So um, obviously, if I were Verstappen or Lewis at the front of the grid, you're not going to go for um, a reckless overtake and risk not finishing the race because they can qualify in the top five or start in the top five for Sunday and still finish first or second. But in a position like us, when you're at the back of the grid, you got to go for it. So this is an opportunity uh, because there are going to be people with having a different approach. You know, um, we've, we've often been good in qualifying. If we can start ahead of some faster cars who are maybe going to play a bit more conservative than, than we are, or starting just behind some cars who are going to be a bit more conservative than we are, maybe that offers an opportunity. So I'm ready for it, to be honest. What's the general feeling? Is this a good move, do you think? It's, it spices up the show? Worth a try? Or is there more negativity about it amongst the drivers, um, circumspection? I think there's a mixed views. Personally, I think changing the format to have three days of action is great. You know, the fans deserve it. We deserve it. And that's what people want. You want to, if we can increase the number of days of, of action, then that's a win-win. So that's definitely a plus. On the flip side, I personally saw no issue with the with the old format. Obviously, that's only split across two days. So it's finding that right balance, really. So if, if you're looking at it from a pure performance and maybe a selfish perspective, then you know there was nothing wrong with the previous format. If you're looking at it from a global perspective and a, a sporting perspective, what will offer more entertainment to the fans then moving to the the sprint qualifying is definitely the way forward mm. bring it on we say i'm very excited I, about I'm, it i'm excited <laughs> i want to see this happen i want to see it i'm definitely going to be uh, more interested in, in in this weekend than i think i've been in a formula one race for a very long time and i'm i'm, I'm always interested so you know <laughs> i'm keen to find out how this all is going to play and it's going to be good George, have you got to do a runner or have you got five minutes? I've, I've got five minutes. Because one of our favourite bits of the show is Ask Damon. Fans, leave a voice message and it can be anything, just to warn you. They ask Damon absolutely everything and it'd be great to get your thoughts on some of these questions as well. So let's fire away with our first question this week, which is from Ella. Hi, Damon. I wanted to ask you... If you could pick any three drivers in the history of F1, old or current, to race against, who would they be and why? And on which circuit would you want the race to happen? Ella, that's a that's an interesting question, isn't it? Um, yeah, I'm going to have to think about that for a second. Fortunately, I've got George Russell here who can also jump in and answer those questions for you. I'm sure you've got you've already thought this through, haven't you, George? You know which circuit, the three drivers of all time, which ones would you like to race? I mean, the point is, you don't really want to race against anyone, do you? Rather, you know, it's the problem is they're, they're all so good. You know, you want an easy guy to drive against, don't you? That's, that's the thing. I mean, if you had your your pick, you'd choose the easier bunch to uh, to give you more more chance of winning. But from my side, I want to go against the best. So, statistically, you, you've got to say Lewis, Michael Schumacher, and 
Ayrton Senna, I'd say they're the, the three that sort of stand out for me. As for the circuit, I guess Silverstone, home crowd, home race, great circuit. Maybe I'll have an advantage there. Good one. You, you just offended Fernando Alonso, you know that, but then you have raced against <laughs> Fernando Alonso. But uh, anyway, you've done that. You've done him, ticked him off the box. So I would say I'm going to go back in time a little bit and I would like to see how I compare to someone like Fangio or someone like Clark. But, uh, you know, I was very lucky, actually, in some ways, because I've already raced against uh, Alan Prost, um, Ayrton Senna and, and Nigel Mansell. So I've, I've got three in the bag there. And I raced against Michael Schumacher as well. So, <laughs> so I've, got, I've had quite a few tough ones to, to have a go at. So I've, I've already had my three. And the circuit would the circuit would be, for me, because I, my best ever race was on Suzuka in the wet. Um, I wouldn't want to do it again. But what a, what a great place to race if you can get a good race in there. I'd be happy with Damon Hill, Johnny Herbert, Sandown Park, karting Wednesday. That'll do me. See you there. <laughs> You're invited, Tom. <laughs> Come along. Great stuff. What about question two? Who have we got? Hi, Damon. This is Nicholas from Madrid. Let's talk helmets for a second. Your father had a fantastic helmet design, which uh, I believe he borrowed from a rowing club maybe you could clarify that it was black with white vertical bars you of course used the same one throughout your career back in uh, your day drivers were instantly recognizable from their helmets we can think of senna's famous yellow helmet mansell's pros yours that's not the case anymore my question is should drivers be obliged to maintain their design helmet design throughout their career rather like they have to do with the numbers or should we just let them do what they're doing now, which is uh, a bit messy, I think. Thanks, Damon. Well, Nicholas. Actually, I just want to correct him on slightly on one thing. The helmet that I wore was not black. It was navy blue, dark navy blue. So it looks looks quite dark, but actually it's navy blue. Uh, and it was the, my dad's helmet design, which he picked up. Basically, he decided to use that. He rode. So he rode for the London Rowing Club, and that was their um, cap design. And the white stripes up represent oars or oars men um, on the boat. So they have eight stripes on it. And I carried that on, as did my son. And so we've had three generations where in the same design which was consistent and also quite conservative i don't think it's a, a patch on what they've what they get up to now but george is i mean I, I honestly i don't know how many times have you changed your crash helmet design george uh i've kind of kept the same theme over the past few years but definitely not quite as standout as back in the day and i, and I do regret that slightly I, I am trying to find a way to make it a bit more stand out a bit more clear iconic because i i do agree with nicholas's point you know you do want to be recognizable from your crash helmet but obviously slightly difficult these days with the halo there obviously for safety reasons it's not quite as out in the open as they were in in your day so um sponsors yeah. logos as well slightly ruin them now don't they there's more sponsors yeah. logos than in your day damon aren't there yeah, no, I had a bit of a discussion with Frank about that because he wanted. He said, "Do you mind if I, you know, splash stickers all over your crash helmet?" <laughs> so I had, I had to I had to object, and uh, and uh, he he actually backed off quite quickly on that, but it was quite good. But um, I don't know how much it cost him or me. Probably should have just said, "How much do you want?" But uh, I didn't. <laughs> great stuff, George. Thank you very much for your time. It's great to have you on the show. Great to get these two. Williams legends together. Really enjoyed hearing you have a chat and best of luck this weekend at Silverstone. Thank you very much, guys. Have a good one. All the All best, right. George. Thanks a lot. <laughs> 
Cheers. Well, DH, I feel we've got a bit of an exclusive from George. He's not signing for Mercedes yet. Now, what, yeah, what did he actually say? It won't be announced this weekend or he's not signed. I can't remember. It won't. DH, he did slip into the conversation. Yeah, next year when I'm hopefully, hopefully fighting for the World Championship. Did you hear him say that? And I found myself thinking, gosh, well... Williams will have taken a big step forward, or is he driving a Mercedes? I think he will be driving for Mercedes, and I've said that before, but I don't actually know. He's excited about the sprint qualifying as well, which is great, and I think both Damon and I are as well, aren't we, DH? Yeah, I'm definitely excited. I think it's brilliant. I mean, you know, Friday can be can be a kind of not, not so you know not so interesting day. I mean, it, it's it's testing basically Friday currently, so I think they're getting away from a wasted day, and now they're going to have an opportunity to promote F1. What about the main race on Sunday? Who is it going to suit? What have we learnt over the last few races in terms of? Has the pendulum swung irreversibly towards Red Bull or can Mercedes get it back? I think it I think it's going to be very close. My guess is that Mercedes will have a more competitive car relative to the one they had in the Red Bull ring because it, this is their circuit. This is a circuit that they've done very well at, but these, you know, it's going to come down to whether the tires can can take it. We've had a, several occasions with Silverstone where the tires have had uh, failures. So, so Going long on a on a set of tyres might not be a, uh, an attractive option, but um, it's so close to call and there's a lot to play for. Lewis needs a good result, let's be honest. Absolutely does. But going with what we know, Mercedes are bringing an upgrade package to this race. Is it going to be enough? Lewis was expressing a little bit of doubt after the last race. And I think when you look at Red Bull and the downforce that that high rate generates and allowing them to run a little bit less rear wing, it's going to be like a bullet down the hangar straight, down the, the, the Wellington straight as well. I just think the Red Bull just looks an unstoppable force. And full of at Goodwood over the weekend, Damon, um, someone close to Adrian Newey, I'm not going to mention their name, said he is working harder now than maybe he's ever worked. Adrian, I'm talking about. And, um, that didn't specify what projects necessarily. He loves to win. You know, he, he is a competitor. There's, Adrian is an incredibly intensely driven designer. He's, he's not just a designer. He wants to win and he wants to be in a race team that well, and he doesn't like being shown up. And, he's, and if, he'll, if he smells victory, then he will work very hard. And um, yeah, I'm, you know, he's been going for quite a long time now at this. I mean, it's uh, the, the, racking up the, the championships. I mean, I don't know, but I mean, he's still motivated as ever. Yeah. And Red Bull have won the last five races. They won one of the races at Silverstone last year. Let's not forget that the 70th anniversary race there. So it will be fascinating. As you say, Lewis needs to win. What about the battle further back, Damon? This one between McLaren and Ferrari. How do you see that one now? Well, I'd be interested. I think as, as Carlos was saying, you know, they don't know what to expect with Ferrari. They turn up at a circuit. One minute is great, next minute it's not. Or qualifies well and then and then races badly. So Ferrari are all over the place, up and down. But they've got they should have the potential to be good at Silverstone. They've 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 been strong in the past at Silverstone. But I do think that McLaren are on the march. They are definitely creeping further and further, closer and closer to the guys at the front end. I mean, 
very, very nearly had pole position in the, the Austrian Grand Prix. But in the way that you said you think Mercedes will be more competitive at Silverstone than they were at the Red Bull ring, do we think McLaren will be less competitive at Silverstone than they were at the Red Bull ring? Uh, I don't see anything, anything that suggests they won't be. I mean, they've got a Mercedes engine and that is a strong engine, but it might not be as good as the Honda now. But uh, it's come down to balance and it comes down to tyres and it comes down to of course the format we've got now so Lando has been qualifying brilliantly so he's got a really good opportunity I think in the Friday qualifying for the the sprint race sprint, uh, the sprint qualifier um, they must be jumping up and down with, the, with, with excitement about this well certainly Lando he actually said at Goodwood he said I'll, I'll take some DNFs for the rest of the year if I can get a decent result at Silverstone. That is how much it means. I think he was exaggerating, but he's really excited about what he can do next weekend. Bold talk. He won't be saying that if he doesn't, if he get crashes out of the uh, qualifying sprint. Qualifying sprint. That was right. No, no. <laughs> correct. Correct. Stefano will be pleased. I'm getting um, the hang of it. And Daniel Ricciardo, we talk about him most weeks, it seems. So much of Silverstone is high speed. How hard is it to get the car to your liking? Because Daniel struggled everywhere this year to get the McLaren to his liking. Is Silverstone hard or, or one of the easier tracks to find a decent balance? Well, they're all difficult, Tom. You know, they're all, they're all so... I mean, Silverstone is, is a high-loading uh, racetrack. It's a very grippy circuit and it's very fast. So you are really just, you know, having to be comfortable with a car that's heavily loaded. And some of it can be, you know, muscle. Some of it literally can be the, the seat of the pants bravery at Silverstone that, that comes into play. And precision, getting the car to go through the Beckett section, you know, it, it, it's easy to get a, a sequence of corners and have the wrong line. So I think that, I think that it's, not a, it's not a circuit where you can find time in small adjustments in slow corners you know they're distantony so that it's all it's all you're rolling along at high speed the whole time so you've got to get the car set up for high loads and uh, and also fast corners and and if you're confident in the car then you can extract time you can extract a lot of time and if you're not confident in the car which seems to be the case with daniel do you expect the gap between yeah. him and lando to increase mm. yeah but i'm i'm saying that i think that in a faster circuit it's not so much Sometimes you can lose a lot more when the, when the car is actually in slower corners uh, because the car doesn't give any feedback. It's much easier to get feedback, I think, when you're in a faster, uh, faster track because the car is, is going to stick. It might jump around a bit, but um, it's going to stick. I mean, it is coming good, I think, for, for Seb now. It seems to be coming, uh, uh, you know, he seems to have worked his way out of the doldrum. And also Aston Martin are looking like a stronger team. They've got their heads down now and seem to be looking forwards and doing reasonably well i mean uh, whether they will be a contender for you know midfield uh, results i think it could well be in the in the top eight you know possibly i think that could be a strong result for them yeah well and they've really closed the gap on alpha tauri in the constructors championship they're currently sixth just four points behind alpha tauri so they'll be hoping to do something about that but of course it was at silverstone last year that we think Sebastian Vettel signed for the team. There was that little bit of footage of him, so not high-fiving, what was he doing? Elbowing Lawrence Stroll as he walked past. And Seb was also spotted in 
Otmar Safnauer's uh, Ferrari going to some service station or something. So, yeah, mm. there's sort of the anniversary of Seb making the jump. And um, it will be great to see Aston Martin racing at home, British Racing Green, although it's not British Racing Green, is it? They've actually said recently they're going to pimp it up and do something to it to make it more TV friendly. But anyway, let's call it British Racing Green. It's, it's going to be a special moment. I'm looking forward to seeing them. We normally do any other business at this point in the show, and there is another thing happening at Silverstone as well. If sprint qualifying wasn't enough, because we're going to get a glance at a full-scale, life-size 2022 Formula One car on Thursday. Where's that going to be? Because I, I want to see that. Yeah, well, I think it's going to be on the grid. I'll see. I've it. heard that some of the designers have come kind of up in arms about it. Going, oh, it's gone backwards and everything. But I, I think I'm interested. I'm really, really interested in seeing because this is going to change Formula One massively. It could even change the order. So you're looking at the future of Formula One and the cars are going to look different. They're going to have low profile tyres on them. They're bigger wheels, but skinnier sidewalls and it's going to look different i think it's very exciting yeah and alex albon was at goodwood at the weekend and he was saying he's doing a lot of sim work with the 2022 car and he says it's great to drive well that car good. is really yeah. nice to drive he said it's not as quick it's not as quick as what we've got now but it's got a really nice feel to it so okay the combination of mm. what alex said to me at the weekend and seeing the car on thursday very very excited. I'm sure we'll see Adrian Newey out there as well. Just Of course, it's not really about the car itself, is it? It's about the racing. So the design has been modified to make racing better. Um, and we'll, we have yet to see, because obviously with one car, you can't find out whether it works or not. So they'll have to have two cars out there pretty soon testing to see whether they've got the result they wanted, uh, which is an, a cars able to get close to each other in the corners. DH, imagine that. You and Johnny Herbert employed to drive the 2022 cars mm. closely together to see how, how the aero works when you're, when you're following another car. That would be good, wouldn't it? I think that might be um, pushing our luck a little bit. But no, I think, Tom, no, I will not be development driver for the 2022 car. And I don't, I'm, I might be preempting jo Johnny, but I think maybe Johnny won't, uh, won't be putting hand his, up, his hand up for that either. Well, look, I've got another potential job for you then, Dave, mm. because I found out recently that McLaren are bringing back their V10 Formula One two-seater. Crumbs. Do you remember that from, it was the late 90s mm. and they had um, the silver two-seater car. Martin Brundle did a lot of the driving back then, taking mm. Murray Walker and lots of McLaren VIPs around. Well, that car is coming back. And they're looking for a driver. So what, what, why are they doing this? Is this is to be run at race meetings so that people can have... Uh, maybe run at race yeah. meetings, or I don't know whether they just... It's a chance to ferry VIPs around. Gosh, okay. And it's quick. A lap of Silverstone in 1998, I think the car was about 10 seconds off what it would have... Uh, a qualifying lap that around there. That would be there. plenty so, fast enough for you, Tom. Yeah. Don't you worry. I want to be driven Don't by you. I'm going to suggest this. Listen, the last time I took someone in the back of a two-seater car, they wanted to be a racing driver. That was my son. It cost me a fortune. That He was he had showed no sign of any interest in until I took him around Silverstone in a two-seater. And then he went, that in a was what, a, what were you driving? Uh, that was a uh, GP Masters car, actually. It wasn't oh. a Formula 1 car, but it was, was fast-ish. Yeah, he jumped out and said, uh, oh, that was great. I want to be a racing driver. 
to, I don't want to do the same to you, Tom. I don't want you suddenly getting oh, big um, ideas. I, do you know what? I'll end up being like that guy, Wade Eastwood, Tom Cruise's stunt double, who at the age of 50 decided that he wanted to be a racing driver. So he raced in British Formula 3 last year, <laughs> age 50. Yes. Oh, well, uh, that, I mean, he's actually not the oldest uh, Formula 3. There was Ronnie Grant, the famous taxi driver, who was 70 when I was racing against him. And he's still going. And uh, I hear from his son every now and then. Uh, lovely, lovely chap. Yeah. Well, I'll see you soon. Couple of days up at the Stone. Yes, settling in, and I'm camping up this time. I'm not. I'm not going outside the circuit, so I'll be inside the circuit for the whole weekend. Hang on, that's exciting. You're camping. Well, I say wow. camping. I'm clamping. I'm in a very you know plush motorhome. <laughs> so, what in the BRDC campsite be, or something? I'm in the BRDC Where? campsite, so that means I have to do my own cooking. So you're very welcome. I know if you're allowed in the bubble, you can come around for bacon and 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 um, uh, not bacon because I'm vegetarian, but beans on toast. Barbie with Damon. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will reconvene after the British Grand Prix for our debrief. Nat's back next week. Mm. She's having a holiday. Would you believe it? This week. Gosh, be great to have Nat back and. Um, DH, I can never remember what your email address is for Ask Damon, but please keep the questions coming in. What's the email address again? Oh, the email address uh, for Ask Damon Hill is askdamonhill at gmail.com. And you have to send in a voice recording, not an email, not a written one, and we'd be delighted to try and answer it. F1 Nation is produced in association with Audioboom. <laughs> no. By F1. It's a, uh, I can do this on my own. Listen to this. Go on, do it. Okay. F1 Nation is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. And we'll see everybody after Silverstone and hopefully see lots of you at the track because the fans are back. Can't wait to see you all. Wave. <laughs> <laughs>